we look forward to what God has for us uh, in His Word this morning. The last, um, the last four weeks or so, I noticed that the messages have been very long, uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and we will not have that trouble today. Uh, we will be uh, 30 minutes here or so. You look at this passage and you think, what are we supposed to squeeze out of this? Right? You're looking at that, were you, were you reading along with me and, and, and thinking, who cares about Asgab and Bezai and Barbubi and all these other people? I mean, it's like, what, what do we have to glean from this? Why did the Lord record this? You ever, you ever reading through the Bible and you come to the lists and you come to the genealogies and what do you do? You skip it. You skip it. Sometimes when you're reading through the Bible in a year, and you come to those numbers passages, you're kind of glad for it because you can catch up on where you've been lacking because you just kind of flip the pages, you scan through the names and say, well, I don't really need all that. For some reason, God recorded these lists. In fact, this list, he recorded twice. He recorded it again in Nehemiah when they reviewed all of those people who came back with Zerubbabel and Joshua and all these other individuals. So when I look at Ezra chapter 2, I got a couple of options. We can do like you do in your Bible reading and skip it. And then what am I saying to you? I'm telling you that this particular portion of Scripture just isn't as important as, say, John chapter 3 or Romans chapter 5. That we can just skip this. That God, the Holy Spirit, was mistaken when he inspired this list. That would be one option. And I thought hard about that option, honestly. I thought, this is tough. You can ask Leah for days this week. I was saying, what am I supposed to produce from a list of names? But I've decided to muddle through and, and hopefully find some things here that are encouraging. In our study leading up to the book of Ezra, we have mentioned many of the different character traits of God that serve as anchor points for us when difficult situations come. I don't have a a screen follow along in the message today. I was starting to work on that when we received the call last night about our friend uh, passing away suddenly. And uh, we were praying and talking to people and texting and that this kind of fell by the wayside. But it is at those very moments that these anchor points come back to us. The sovereignty of God. The faithfulness of God. His compassion. His promise keeping. His powerful, uh, his power, his creativity. That he is the author of history. Those things, those, those character traits of God aren't, aren't meant to just be in a vacuum or to only be theory. They are tested when our lives become difficult and we find out really what it is that we truly trust in. These passages that we come to seem boring and irrelevant, but God actually has another message about his character in it for us and I pray that he provides the instruction and comfort that we need. So, three thoughts. Again, they've been 50 minutes the last four or five weeks. We'll be very brief today. What are the three things we can learn about God from a passage like this? Because God primarily is the character of the Bible. He's not only its author, but he is the main character. The Bible is not a book about you. It is wrong for us to come to a passage, any passage in the Bible, and say, what is this saying about me? I've heard people say, and I've mentioned this to you before, 
that when you read the Bible, you should look for yourself in the Bible. And that's craziness. The, the, the idea that the Bible is, is Andy-centered is like the height of self-humanism. It's like the height of idolatry. The Bible is a book about God. It's not even primarily a book about people that God worked with and used. It's a book about God. Even this section with this seemingly random list of names and numbers of people who have marched back to Israel from Babylon is something that God is showing us about himself. Now, a little bit of a context before we get to these three things that we learn about God. The people had been sent away because of the rebellion of the last of the nation of Judah. Those last ungodly four kings did not listen to the message of Jeremiah and were punished just as God said they would be. And they were exiled for a period of about 70 years. The first the first entrance of Nebuchadnezzar into, into the nation of Judah was about 605. Now we're coming to about 535. So it's about 70 years. If you were one of the ones taken at the very beginning, you're probably dead by now. These lists of names, are it, it kept saying the sons of, the sons of. You know that the genealogies are super important. And in fact, there's one group of people that could not prove their genealogy, and so they were forbidden from being a Levite. These these, I mean, when they were being exiled, you can imagine that most of these people, like in a fire, what is it that you grab in your home? What, are you gonna, what is the most important thing to you? When these people were being exiled, they probably gathered up those descendant and genealogy documents because proving their, uh, their ancestry and their ownership of land would be of primary importance for them. Seventy years passed, and King Cyrus, we talked about this last week, conquered Babylon and decided because of his polytheistic views that he was going to send everybody back to their land to build the temple of their God. And this included uh, the people of Judah. Now Ezra is not on the scene yet. You see his name was not listed in these people. He's still back in Babylon and he's not going to join the story actually until Ezra chapter 7. The first name of the person that is listed is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is actually I don't know if it's the son or the grandson of one of those ungodly kings. He is actually the rightful king. He's not going to become king, but he is going to be the leader of these people as they return. They're marching back to a city that has been destroyed. Remember this? The temple was burned. The city walls were torn down. All of the major homes uh, were, were destroyed. The only people that were left in Judah were the poorest of the poor. So there is... 70 years the land basically lay desolate, but they are marching back. And here God gives us a list of the people. If you look back in chapter 1, why are they going back? They're going back because God had stirred them up. See it in verse 5. Everyone whose spirit God stirred up to go. And now so you see every one of these people who are going back, it is because God has stirred them up. And they're making that trail down finally to come and feast their eyes on what they hadn't seen for 50, 60, 70 years. So what do we learn about God? Number one, we're not going to reread this list of names, but we might point out a few things. First of all, God is faithful. The first thing we learn in this list of names is that God is faithful. And this has been a recurring theme in all of our study. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, 
God promised Abraham, who was childless at the time, that his descendants would multiply like the sand on the beach and like the stars in the heavens. In Genesis 15:5, he tells Abraham, look to the sky. If you can count the stars, then you will be able to count the number of descendants you have. He had zero sons at that time. 80, 90 years old, no, no children. Yet God had promised that he would have descendants innumerable. We just read a list of some of these descendants. There are about 40,000 listed here. And God had not abandoned his promise to Abraham. He could have let these 40,000 just die at the hands of Cyrus or, or excuse me, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Perhaps some people in Babylon at that time are looking at these some 40,000 or more Jews and thinking, these are the crummy individuals that claim they are the children of promise, right? And they may even say things, the Babylonians, like maybe they mocked them. Where, where's, where's, where's your God? Uh, where are his fulfilled promises? Here you are living in a land that's not yours. Uh, your your, your uh, center of worship has been destroyed. Yet you are resting on thousand-year-old promises of a God who doesn't exist. You, you buffoons! Can you hear the Babylonians saying that to them? And maybe even some of these Jews started to think those same things. We know God has made these mighty promises to Abraham, to Noah, to David, the rest of them. And maybe they began to think, God must be finished with us. Wouldn't you, tend they, wouldn't you think they'd start to think that? God must be finished with us. The, the promise must not be true. We're history. He's forgotten us. But yet he hadn't. I'm sure there are many who doubted the promise would come to pass as it's been 50 years. There can be a couple of negative responses that we can entertain when we think the passing of time is leading to God not fulfilling his promises. Did I say that right? When time goes on, right, there's been delay and God has promised something and the time just continues to delay, we start to then think it must not be coming. Imagine if I promised at the beginning of the year to my family that we're going to go on this fabulous vacation to Hawaii this year, and I promised that to them. Now here we are in July, and we haven't gone yet. I didn't make that promise, but imagine if I did. We get to August, September, October, November, and now they're thinking, by November, by Thanksgiving, they're thinking, Dad forgot his promise. We're not going. Right? That, that, when time delays like that, we have really two responses. We start to become skeptics or scoffers. We become skeptics or scoffers. We're like the skeptics who have little faith that Derek read about this morning. Like we just start to think, God must not have meant that. But the scoffing part, if you can think about in your mind, 2 Peter chapter 3, there are some scoffers there that God predicts are going to be coming at the end times. And they say, all things have continued since the beginning. Where is the promise of his coming? 
That's the ultimate promise that we as believers in this church age are thinking about, that, that Christ has promised to return. John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. That was some 2,000 years ago. And it's easy during a period of delay to start thinking, I guess it's not going to happen, or we actually turn to scoffers. But let us remind ourselves of this. The passing of time does not negate the promise of God. Just because a long period of time has passed does not mean that God is not going to follow through. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not slack or slow concerning his promise. For a thousand years or as a day, you think about the people in Scripture who waited. I already mentioned Abraham and Sarah waiting for a child, or Noah waiting for rain. God said it would rain. Noah took 120 years to build the ark. The delay in time does not negate the promise of God. The Old Testament Jews waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Here in this particular context, we have this whole list of exiles waiting to return. And now here we are waiting for the return of Christ. Listen to a couple of these verses regarding that. Isaiah 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And here's one that's maybe a little more obscure. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3. The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Listen to this. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Let's not allow the, the time delay that God has put between the, the ascension of Christ to what we're awaiting, his next coming, to, to cause us to start being skeptical that he may never return at all. In Luke 18, verse 7 and 8, Will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring justice to them speedily. See, the problem is we live in a day now where we have two-day shipping on Amazon. And anything longer than that, we get frustrated. You mean i got to wait a week for the comic book? Or the, or the computer part, or whatever it is. I, I mean, I'm supposed to get this instantly. We have instant communication, almost instant transportation, instant information, and, and instant delivery. I mean, we, we just, anything else seems slow. Let us encourage ourselves through this truth that God is faithful. We can wait on him. Can you imagine these exiles walking back? Let's put ourselves in that picture. I had a map to show you about their journey back, but let's put ourselves on that road with the sons of Asgab and Big Vi and all these other people, these 40,000 people. We're in the middle of that caravan. What are we hearing and what are we saying? Just think about that for a minute. You just, we just read through this list of names. What is... One of these names was bizarre, wasn't it? The, the sons of Kiriath, Aram, Shephetra. What are those sons saying to each other? What are you hearing? You know, I wrote down about six or eight things. Isn't God good? I told you. Right? Can you imagine? 
I knew this day would come. Some high fives. We're living, uh, we're living fulfillment of God's promise. It may have taken a long time, but we're on our way back. Can you believe it? And they're sharing these different uh, thoughts and ideas with each other. Probably even singing together. Praise God, I'm sure, would be something that they would be saying over and over to each other. Now, as you think of that, imagine ourselves in the kingdom of heaven having some of those same conversations. I mean, we talked about it yesterday with, uh, with this friend of ours who passed away, and we also had heard of some other people that we we are connected with or knew of that passed away. We had, we had this thought. I mean, all these people just kind of marching into heaven, right? Those, those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, repented of their sins. What is that experience like? What, what, here this person goes, and a few seconds later this person goes, and today others will go. At some point we're all going. I've said this before. There's, there's an order. God knows the order. One of us in this room will go next, and one of us will go last. But we're all going. We will all die. Not all of us may be in heaven, sad to say. I don't know everyone's personal heart in this room. But I hope that's the case. But at some point, those of us who are Christians will be walking in heaven and will see each other. And what will we say? Good to see you again. Way to go. You made it. I was worried about you. I imagine we'll be saying some of the same things these exiles were saying. Isn't God good? Can you believe it? His promises were true. I told you. Praise God, of course, will be a phrase that we'll all say together. All of us will praise God, the faithful God, in the same way that these exiles most likely were on their trip back to Judah, because God is faithful. Remember the passage we looked at from 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, I think it was verse 24 and 25, where it says, uh, Paul is kind of leading in a benediction, he says, may the God who saved you, this is a terrible paraphrase, may the God who saved you, he will bring you to the end blameless. He will, he will take those of his who are his children and bring them to heaven safely. And then it says, because God is faithful, he will surely do it. The faithfulness of God is a major anchor point on which your heart can rest today, even when you doubt that the promises of God will come to pass. Number two, what else do we learn about God? That was, that was the longest point today. These next two will be shorter. Not only is he, God is faithful, but I want to use this phrase. He is the God of our fathers. He is the God of our fathers. Turn ahead to Ezra 7, just briefly. I just want to show you the phrase. The phrase God of our fathers is used eight times in the Bible. And one of the times is in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7, Ezra is uh, stating a prayer or a blessing unto the Lord. And here's how he says it. Blessed be, this is 727. Blessed be the Lord, 
the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Let's read it one more time. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. If you look back at 721, you see that Ezra is speaking of Artaxerxes the king, who gave all this uh, stuff, and we'll get to this eventually, so that the temple might be built in a beautiful way. He may not have been talking about Cyrus, you can go back to Ezra 1, but his statement is true there as well. The God of our fathers also stirred up Cyrus to let the people go back. He uses the phrase, God of our fathers. Out of the eight times that it's used, four times it's used in the book of Acts during sermons that Paul is giving. The thing that we learn about this and this list of names is that God is not just God of a, of a single moment. The phrase God of the fathers, God of our fathers, points to his eternal character. Okay, so if our, I'm trying to use the letter F just because it helps me. He's, he's, God is faithful, and then he's God of our fathers. Well, faithfulness is obviously the characteristic we first discussed, but this characteristic is, is his eternality, his eternal nature. He is the God of our fathers, and he is the God of their fathers. He is the God of Abraham. This phrase is used often in Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And what is being stated when people say this is that he is the eternal God. While men and women march to the grave, God stands eternal. God has been and always will be there. He's the God of our Father. We could say He'd be the God of our sons. He, he is the God of all time. When you look at these, He's the God of the father of Zakai. He's the God of the father of Ater. I mean, so on, so on, so on. Look at Psalm 90. We're pretty close to Psalms. Let's look at this. This would be a main passage for you to know when you think about the eternal character of God. Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90, verse 1. This is actually Moses' psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. All generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Asgab and Barzai and Kariath, whoever, all of those people called to God in the same way we do. Isn't that comforting? These people depended on God's faithfulness just like we do. These are, these are all people. They got weird names. We don't run into any uh, Uzzahs or Siahas or Akubs. Or, we don't run into people like that anymore. But these are real people who trusted in the same God we do because He has been our dwelling place in all generations. Isn't there a sense of comfort that every generation is not inventing some new God to depend on, but we're depending on the same God our father depended on and our grandfather depended on, if, if they were believers? But the, but the point isn't necessarily 
their God. It is that he is the God, and he has always been there. And there is an anchor point in that, isn't there? There, there is a comfort in that. Look at verse 3, if you're still in Psalm 90. You return, this is God, it's the you here is God. You return man to dust. And say, return, O children of man. Someday he will say, Andy, dust. And the phone call will come. Andy dropped dead. Or he had cancer. Or whatever it is that's going to take my life at some point. God is the one, the eternal God, who has my days numbered. And is going to snuff that life out whenever he chooses to. Because of his great promises, I will immediately enter into his presence. Praise God. But, it, but the eternal God is in view here, and the, and the, the uh, mortal man, mortal woman, when God says it, it's over. The list of these people, all of these people are gone. Every single one of these people, the thousands, 40,000 we mentioned back in Ezra chapter 2, they're gone. But God was faithful to them, and God was consistently loyal to them, and God was there for them. That's, that's an excellent thought. God is not a transient being who shifts. Even though culture tries to reinvent God every so often, they try to make God in their image. God is the eternal rock of ages. He is the God of our fathers. Isn't that good? Okay. Faithful. He's the God of our fathers. Third and last. Give me five more minutes. Back in Ezra chapter 2. He is the God of the finite. The God of the finite. You know what this passage, as you read Ezra chapter 2, God cares about details. God cares about details. I read this passage a couple of times this week. There, there's, there's one phrase that just... I started to laugh at every time I looked at it. Even when we read it, I kind of chuckled. It's in verse number 31. The sons of the other Elam. I'd like to be that guy. You know, because back at, where, where's the first Elam? Verse number 7, you have the sons of Elam. And believe it or not, there doesn't seem to be any repeats in the names except him. And it comes down to it, it says, and the sons of the other Elam. Like, that would just kind of get me. But, but it actually is kind of cool for this other Elam because he's kind of differentiated between these other people. There was one Elam and there was another Elam. For instance, I mean, how many Dave Johnsons are there in the world today, right? It's fun. I like to, I like to Google my name sometime, and there's another Andy Burak, which is weird. And the weird thing is he's married to Aaliyah. That's bizarre. And in my mind, he's the other Andy Burak. Okay, I'm, I'm, the main, I'm the main one. He can be the other one. Now, this is all kind of funny. What, what kind of point are we trying to make? The other Elam, according to the number here in verse 31, he had 1,254 descendants that were coming back. And every one of those 1,254 people of the other Elam, along with the 1,254 of the main Elam, all of those guys had, and girls had birthdays, and pets, and fears, and favorite foods, and dreams, things they were scared about at night, right? Aches and pains, hopes, illnesses, habits, 
How many of the 1,254 bit their fingernails? You know, how many of them didn't like unleavened bread? I, you know, all of, every one of those individuals was an individual, and every one of them, every 1,254 of them, God wanted counted, and God wanted remembered. Not because the other Elam was so important, but because God is aware and loves and cares for each one of those 1254. Each one of the 40,000, whatever, that came back. See, I don't even remember the number, and I just read it. Even down to the, it was in verse 64, it tells us there were 42,360. And God wants us to know that he even knows the number of their horses, the number of their mules, the number of their camels, and the number of their donkeys. Does the sheer number of people in the world astound you? Last week, I was having trouble sleeping at night, and so I went downstairs and I turned on this Ken Burns documentary on Mark Twain. That's sure to make you fall right asleep, except it didn't at first. And it, it got to the point in Mark Twain's life where he was doing some speeches in the West. He, he was living in Nevada and California, and he found that he, when he gave speeches on things that he had learned about, he was funny and a lot of people came. Well, they had this picture of this crowded room. It, the room was probably this size, but it was packed. And you, if you've watched a Ken Burns documentary, it's primarily just photos, and it zooms in on the photos. And it, it's got hundreds of people, hundreds of people who lived in Nevada in the 1800s. And you look, I'm looking at every one of these people, like every single one of these people had worries and needs and problems and children and and God loves and knows each one of those people. And that, that, that was one picture. And then you come to a passage like this. You think of God's intimacy with each individual. It reminds us of passages like this. Let's listen to these. Luke 12, 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Then in Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, psalmist says this, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now this is going to blow you away. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. I look at that picture of Mark Twain or, or think about the astounding number of people. We see pictures of the protests and just mobs of people and God not only knows but cares for each individual. Not only that, he sent his beloved son to die for those people. He sent them to die for those people in that Mark Twain picture. He sent them to die for these people marching back to Judah. Every single one of the sons of the other Elam, the 1,254, God sent his son to die. Psalm 56, 8. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? God has concern and love and compassion for the details of our lives. 
even though there are billions of people. And the astonishing thing is not only the billion, what is it, 7.9 billion or whatever it is now, that are living now besides all that lived in, in this number, this list. Imagine if this book just contained the list of all the people on the earth now and we just read it through. God is intimately aware and, and loves each one of those. Doesn't that give you some sense of comfort that your problems are not overlooked God is not so busy with the other 7.8 billion people that he cannot care for you. And what blows you away is that he also knows the birds. And the implication is here, he knows the bugs. The only, the only way I can illustrate it to make sense for me is, is by saying this, and we'll finish with this. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and you've gone by the monuments there, you go to the Vietnam Memorial, which is just the listing of the names of the dead or missing. And you walk by there and everyone is moved, right? Everyone is moved by that. You walk by and you just look, you look at all the names. I mean, just, it's, what is it, a half mile just of names. And that's what it is to us, right? Just Names. And there might be a time that you're walking by and someone with a, with a paper is scratching, doing a scratching. I don't know if that's what you call it, but getting the name so it appears. and Because there, there's an intimate connection with that person. Maybe it's a grandfather or something. And you might even come across a person who is weeping because the, the, the name that is scratched into the marble or whatever it is, is actually their spouse or their father. And those who are unconcerned walk by and are moved because those are all names, but there's not an awareness of it. And just imagine a wall of names with everyone who's ever lived and God being intimately connected to each person on that list and, and, and God being intimately aware and in love with that person. And it would be like every single name God would have to pause and make an etching. And I know that's... I don't mean for that to be trite, but I'm trying to help you understand that, that, that God is a God who cares intimately about every single one of you. And though it might not feel that way sometimes, the truth of this list proves that. That God wanted to record all of these people for us. These are the people he was faithful to. He was the God of their fathers. He was the God of the finite. God knows and cares for each one. And it is demonstrated in his sending his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. So good. Praise God. We're going to sing a song, but let's pray and confirm these things and thank him for it. God, we love you, and we are so thankful for the truths that we've learned, even from this odd portion of Scripture, this list of names. But it reminds us of your compassion, your faithfulness, your eternal, eternal nature. And I pray that it was an encouragement to us as we reflected upon it today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.